Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. I am your host, Patrick Farnsworth. Before I introduce the guests for this episode, I have to thank the people who support this work. And there's a whole variety of ways that people do that. If you're listening, of course, that's one way. Sharing with others, subscribing, following on social media, whatever. There's a whole bunch of ways that you can support this work. But of course, I really have to thank the patrons of the podcast, those that are backing this work financially. And if you want to also back this work financially, you can do that at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. You can start at a dollar a month. You can also do yearly contributions, but you can start at a dollar a month. You can, of course, do more than that if you fill up to that. But starting at a dollar, you'll get early access to all these interviews. I have this whole back catalog of interviews that I've done for years now that's up there on Patreon. And there's some other stuff there as well that might be enticing to you. So please consider supporting this work at patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. Thank you. We have to look at the future with eyes wide open. Why am I doing this with every other aspect in my life and the political world and geopolitics and I'm not doing this with the environment and especially as I'm bringing children into the world, I need to see with eyes wide open. I need to see what, what we're enter- entering into and not to demoralize me, but to empower me because truth is empowering and I think reality is empowering and I want to embrace that reality. But it, but it was also very kind of intense. I mean, it, it's an, it's intense to embrace that while coupling, you know, <laughs> child care and child rearing. And it's like, okay, what, what am I going to look back at my life and say, what did I do? What did I do at this moment? I mean, how am I going to justify this to my children? Independent journalist and documentarian Abby Martin joins me to discuss Earth's Greatest Enemy, a feature-length documentary that examines one of the largest polluters and contributors to global climate change in the world, the United States military. The forthcoming feature-length documentary, Earth's Greatest Enemy, does something sorely needed in the discourse about climate change and the global environmental crisis. It shines a light on the devastation the U.S. military leaves behind in every landscape it arrives at, every body of water and airspace it traverses, and every community of life, human and more than human alike, it disregards with callous imperial hubris. The United States has the largest military presence in the world. According to David Vine, professor of political anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C., there are about 750 U.S. military bases in at least 80 countries around the world, and according to a 2021 report by Al Jazeera, the actual number may be even higher as not all data is published by the Pentagon. Abby Warren corroborates that point in this interview. The scale and scope of U.S. military installations, from large-scale bases to lily pads to clandestine black sites, is inconceivably far-reaching. Hell, the Pentagon may not even be able to account for the entirety of it, having failed its sixth yearly audit in a row this last November. But who's counting anyway? The U.S. military is behemoth. And with its global status, its role in shaping global affairs is unassailable. So is it really a surprise that as national political leaders discuss how to address the realities of global heating, at times even pointing to some of the obvious perpetrators of this crisis, such as fossil fuel corporations and rampant consumerism, that the military-industrial complex is never even mentioned? 
that climate policy goals concocted and refined at international summits would even allude to the U.S. military and its benefactors as part of the problem? I think you know the answer to that. The direct connections between the violence of militarism and the violence of anthropogenic climate change are made plain in this discussion. We acknowledge the roots that gave rise to the U.S. empire and the phenomena of climate disruption are the same. Concurrent with this discussion, both its recording and release, is the ongoing genocide in Gaza being perpetrated by the so-called Israeli Defense Forces. Abby has reported on the realities of the Israeli occupation of Palestine for years, and we spend a considerable amount of this interview discussing her journalism on the subject. We also reference her powerful speech at the Belmarsh Tribunal about the persecution of Julian Assange by the United Kingdom and the United States, and the ways truth-telling is suppressed. There are many ways to assassinate a journalist, some of them being defamation, some by legal persecution, and in the case of over 100 journalists in Gaza, by bullets and bombs. Well, I, I have to just say, Abby, it is really good to meet you. I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I've been following your work for quite a long time. So um, there was like one person I was like, you know, it would be really cool to have Abby Martin on the podcast. I don't know if I can pull it off, but if I can, great, you know. <laughs> so it's really an honor to have you here. So thank you so much for the time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. Your podcast looks really cool, and I'm excited to be talking to you. Yeah, you know, I think the the common the connection here for setting this up was Dar Jamal, who is a really good friend of mine and a friend of the podcast. And, um, you know, I remember back in 2020-ish when this documentary we're going to discuss, um, Earth's Greatest Enemy, um, was really, I, I think when you were really starting production, you had, uh, from my memory, reached out to Dar about participating in this. And... Um, you know, it was, it was a weird time, early COVID, and uh, he was unsure about traveling at that time. But, you know, you made it work. And based on what I've seen, I haven't seen the documentary, but based on what I've seen, it's like, you know, he's a it's, uh, seems like a pretty significant contributor to the production of the pod, uh, excuse me, uh, to the documentary. And so, you know, when he mentioned that you reached out to him, I was like, yeah, like I've been following Abby Martin's work for years. I mean, breaking the set days breaking the set baby <laughs> old school fan yeah i mean i remember that i was like i was thinking like doing this work i've met a lot of great people that have been pretty influential in just my own individual kind of thinking about a lot of subjects and yeah i don't know how i came across your work but i did and i've been following you ever since so yeah it's really great to meet you <laughs> thank you so much patrick it's amazing to meet you too and it's very cool that we have a mutual friend in dar and that mm -hmm. you kind of urged his participation in the doc and and um, <laughs> yeah. you basically made Dar participate and I really appreciate that. No, it's no. it's awesome. Dar is a great guy um, and it's really cool to have a mutual friend in him and he's one of the only people that has really made this link between militarism and environmentalism and mm -hmm. he's been doing this for decades and I, I'll never forget as I was starting out in journalism, seeing his coverage in Iraq. And I was just like, this guy's really yeah. awesome. And he kind of paved his own way and hearing his story about, you know, the impetus for him to, to go there just as a citizen journalist was mm -hmm. greatly inspiring to me. So it kind of all came full circle with the doc. So yeah, I'm excited sure. to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he is a really interesting, as far as his like career trajectory as a journalist, it's just kind of remarkable. Um, and when we had the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq just this last year, and I 
had him on to discuss that as well. So yeah, you know, this, this, this link I want to like try to get at with you. I had like two like topics, I guess, or major like contain uh, containers of topics, which was one is to discuss the what this doc is about, which is from my understanding about the military, U.S. military industrial complex, and it's like the elephant in the room when we discuss climate change and environmental crisis. Like whenever we think about who's responsible, we always think of oil companies, fossil fuel companies, which is obvious. We think of like a culture of consumerism, which is another component, of course. But the thing that's just like often left out is the U.S. military in that that role. So it seems like that's what your doc is really addressing. And so I want to discuss that, but I also want to discuss what's going on in Gaza. You know, you've done an incredible amount of journalism discussing the Palestinian, called the Palestinian question or the Palestinian situation. Um, and of course, what's been happening over the past, what, almost three months now mm-hmm. has just been, um, I don't know if there's really the right words for it, but it's just, it's horrific, you know, and you've done a, a lot of journalism around that subject, not just recently, but over the years. So I wanted to figure out a way if there was a bridge between these subjects, right? Um, but I guess we could just begin, you know, with what is the Earth's greatest enemy? <laughs> I mean, I think there is a bridge between the subjects, and I think it's an obvious one, which is war is not green. I mean, obviously so, right? When you're dropping massive amounts of uh, firepower and, and dumb bombs and, I mean, just bullets alone, all of these munitions cause an incredible amount of damage infrastructurally. I mean, when you're demolishing concrete and you're releasing the carbon captured in that, and then uh, the obvious uh, restructuring and rebuilding that has to come next. And I mean, the environmental damage, the health damage to people from just the uh, chemicals released from from what's being dropped, and then just the um, destruction of the land. And that's, that's going to be I mean, you look at dead zones back from, you know, World War One. I. I mean, there's still there's right. still plants and animals that can't survive and and where fighting took place. So I think mm-hmm. that the link is so obvious and so urgent. Um, Earth's greatest enemy is essentially it's the United States as it exists as an empire. I mean, we are living under an imperial force of domination that subjugates tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world under the boot of hegemony. And this structure is recklessly destroying the environment, ecosystems, habitats, and also just, of course, the people that peripherally live in any area that militarism takes place. And this is all in the name of profit making and uh, maintaining this power structure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, again, I mentioned it's like the elephant in the room, which is to say, you know, again, we can point to all these really obvious entities, these entities that are obviously responsible for, uh, car, you know, excess carbon emissions and things like this, but really like maintaining the infrastructure of the U S empire. I mean, I vaguely remember one time, like the Pentagon was trying to do some audit or something about like really trying to get a scale of like, what is the U.S. in, you know, infrastructurally? Like, where is all of the <laughs> stockpiles of weapons? Where are the military bases? Where are we, you know, landing strips? You know, I mean, like, what is the true, like, scope of this? And they even had a hard time <laughs> quantifying it. But if you could try to quantify it, I mean, 
it's almost an impossible task, but like just to give us like a scale. Cause I mean, I, we've all, I think a lot of us have seen those maps of like all the little dots around the world of like mm -hmm. us military bases, but I don't even think that gives us a real scale or scope of it. It doesn't. And this is, I think this has been the albatross of, and the undertaking of a movie of this scale, because like mm -hmm. it, it actually like matches the difficulties of making a movie like this because it is so ubiquitous and it is so abstract when you're looking at how do you actually quantify the impact and the reach of the U.S. military? Because, I mean, it, it's so many levels, Patrick. And if you're just looking at like just carbon emissions, I mean, let's just start there because I think that was the impetus for a lot of this in, in terms of my profound climate anxiety, mm -hmm. having a mm. child and then coupling that with my decades long just activist background of fighting militarism and all of that coalescing and then like looking at the fact that let's just say um you know climate emissions and 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 when you're mm. looking at the military is exempt from all of these treaties and that the military actually made it so that no country's military has to register any of the emissions in any of these you know, conference of parties that happen mm -hmm. every year. And it's just this huge farce. And so there are scholars and academic studies and institutions that actually do try to take this data um, and, and extrapolate it out in terms of, you know, like if you just look at the military's own data of their oil purchases, because they don't, they don't quantify or catalog their actual emissions at all. This has to be done by outside mm -hmm. groups that just take the, the sheer data of how much oil they purchase. Mm -hmm. And when you just look at that number, that <laughs> makes the U.S. military institutionally the largest polluting force in the world by the military's own data. And then you just extrapolate more and more and more, Patrick, and it gets so massive yeah. that... I mean, let's just go through that if you don't mind. Like, I there's yeah, yeah. so much to unpack here, and and sure. this is like, it's so big. I mean, like you said, you look at these maps and you see, you know, dots speckled all around the world, uh, yeah. and that's how far-reaching these bases are. I mean, we're talking about a thousand bases, lily pad bases that we don't even we can't even account for. I mean, CIA outposts, all of these things that aren't even right. registered necessarily mm -hmm. as like U.S. military installations. That's just one facet of it. Um, I think that when you're just looking at um, why are the emissions so high and you look at just the sheer amount of vehicles and aircraft and, and starting there, I think is just really extreme because we hear these statistics all the time that the U S military is like bigger than the next 10 countries combined, or we spend more on the military than the next 10 countries combined. But like, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. Because it's a behemoth of air power. It is so outrageously massive compared to even, you know, China and Russia and all of the countries below that. Like, I mean, jet fuel alone, bunker fuel alone, these are very, very dirty fuels. Mm -hmm. um, bunker fuels, when you're looking at our aircraft, uh, I'm sorry, our naval fleet, that isn't even counted because a lot of this fuel is basically accumulated through ships that are traveling in international waters. And so they don't have to even count that fuel. And that fuel is actually a hundred times dirtier than diesel, mm. um, all of the bunker fuel that's being used. And then when you look at um, aircraft fuel, I mean, they're flying these fucking aircraft around just in pointless missions and patrols 24 right. seven. And let's just look at a single flight of a B-52 bomber. 
there are 80 of these planes flying needlessly, randomly all the time, just on these pointless missions to maintain mission readiness, right? Mm -hmm. A typical mission for B-52 bombers, 15 hours. And just check out this statistic. Okay, so the US, the average US driver burns close to 500 gallons of fuel per year, which is crazy because Americans drive more than anyone else on earth. Like it's already ridiculously unsustainable, our country. But when you compare an average US driver to a B-52 bomber, you would have to drive basically for like seven years straight just Mm -hmm. to match one mission of a B-52 bomber flying Mm -hmm. around for a couple hours in the air. So that Mm -hmm. just gives you like some insight of just how insane that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, and then you're looking at fuel use from DOD facilities. You mentioned the bases around the world. They just count domestic bases. They don't count international (laughs) bases when they're, (laughs) when they're quantifying their own fuel consumption. Uh So just imagine, I mean, how many installations are just burning fuel all of the the infrastructure all of the the missions all of the munitions that are used um just with missions just with practice rounds we're not even talking about war right mm-hmm. and then and then you look at uh, the obvious nature going back to gaza what is the environmental impact of just war warfare right. mm-hmm. um, bombs bullets all of those and then you know obviously then we get more kind of abstract and we look at proxy wars, proxy forces, um, dictatorships that are propped up and only basically only exist because of U.S. power. Look at an institution like NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at just the structure of imperialism and then you you understand that it necessitates that fossil fuel infrastructure and that fossil fuel domination around the world. So there are so <laughs> many layers to what mm-hmm. is happening here. And it's, yeah. it's mind blowing because it's like, you literally can't quantify this. Like you, you don't quantify, you know, blowing up like, like what happened in Yemen. I mean, the U S would just like wipe its hands clean of that, even though they were supplying all the means and the military mm-hmm. intelligence for Saudi Arabia to, to facilitate what was doing in Yemen. When you're blowing up gas depots and water lines and all of that, I mean, that's all the carbon captured and then obvi- the obvious rebuilding um, that goes into something like that. And we're not even talking about, we haven't even talked about military industry and the supply chain, which is all of the raw mm-hmm. materials needed to build the weapons, ship the weapons, and all of the industry that isn't even included in what the military's calculations are of their own um, their own data of, of oil purchasing. So it's massive, Patrick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just to speak to just the, just the occasional, like as a civilian, not a, never served in the military, never will, right? You know, or I don't even really know many people that have um, at this point in my life. But, you know, just to like, when you do occasionally get that glimpse, and I'm sure when you did this documentary, you saw it like more full on, obviously, and I'm sure that was a huge amount of exposure. But like, you know, like, I don't know, I just think about the times I've been to military bases, and driven by a military mm-hmm. base, and they're just like flying jets, just like, because, you know, and you're just sort of, like, you know, my mind starts to think like, okay, this is just one base in one place. And they're just kind of doing this regularly. It, it is kind of um, the mind kind of almost reels <laughs> the scale of this apparatus. And again, so much of that isn't even quantifiable because it's not even recorded officially. So, 
Yeah, I, I just, I, I wanted to also kind of address, like, you decided some time ago, I don't know where this began with you, the seeds of this project began, but I'm curious what those are, because it's like, this is a massive investment of time and energy. There's probably answers that you probably couldn't even get out of people that, that had maybe some sense of, of the scale of this and what was really going on. Um, you... Yeah, I mean, this is a, I, I don't know what the progress is as far as this project goes. We'll talk about that. But I mean, this is a massive undertaking as far as documentary goes. So I'm curious, like, when did it become clear to you? When did the idea crystallize in your mind and in the minds of those you collaborated with that this was worth addressing? Because again, there isn't a full length documentary that I know anyway about this subject. There's not. And there only has been there is a book uh, by Netta Crawford, the Brown University scholar who, you know, does the Cost of War project. There, it, mm. It's a great book. It kind of just tracks the rise and fall of military emissions over the decades. Um, and there have been academic studies. Like I said, there's there's uh, Citizens for Global Responsibility. There's UK-based institutions that tries that try to quantify and and calculate. The military emissions from Europe mm. and the U.S. It's very difficult to do, um, but no one has done a cumulative um, thesis on the full environmental impact of the military. So mm. it's only kind of focused on emissions, which you know that that's very necessary research. But we're taking it much bigger than just emissions. Emissions kind of are what inspired the documentary. I think I realized. Yeah. I think I realized way before I read Dar's book, I mean, I think I I clearly understood the fact that um, the military was exempt from these treaties. And I was just mm. always completely alarmed by that because, you know, I was radicalized by the Iraq war. I've been an anti-war activist my whole life. And then realizing that media had failed us so much and was a main uh, facet of why we got into Iraq in the first place, it drove my passion for journalism and citizen mm. journalism and mm-hmm. So all the rest is history on that front. But I think the worlds collided when I read Dar's book. I mean, honestly, I think Mm. a part of me was resistant to really looking at the science because I just didn't. I was just like, I know it's really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Am I going to go all in here and really look? And, um, And so kind of intentionally I was just like I never was watching really climate change documentaries or reading climate change mm-hmm. material and I was just like look this is a friend of mine and he pivoted over to to this research and you know and and my husband had read End of Ice and so I just read it mm-hmm. and I was just I was so mad yeah. I was so mad because I think it synthesized a lot for me even though it didn't necessarily address militarism in the book it just it was so urgent and so dire and it and it synthesize things for me in a way Dar is just really incredible writer and his focus really spoke to me. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, you know what? We have to look at the future with eyes wide open. Why am I doing this with every other aspect in my life and the political world and geopolitics? And I'm not doing this with the environment. And especially as I'm bringing children into the world, I need to see with eyes wide open. I need to see what, what we're entering into. Um, and not to demoralize me, but to empower me because truth yeah. is empowering. And I think reality is empowering and I want to embrace that reality. But it but it was also very kind of intense. I mean, it, it's an, it's intense to embrace that while coupling, you know, 
<laughs> child care and child rearing. And it's like, okay, what, what am I going to look back at my life and say, what did I do? Right. What did I do at this moment? I mean, how am I going to justify this to my children? Um, right. And so it, it was kind of like the absence of something like this coupled with just our climate anxiety and passion for what we do, which is anti-war activism. And then kind of looking at the wide swath of the environmental movement and the climate change movement, which is, you know, tens of millions of people in the streets, Gen Z is at the forefront. It's very inspiring to see what's going on. And now with the ceasefire movement and pro-Palestine solidarity actions, but I think just bridging those worlds, Patrick, and, and thinking this needs to be a necessary intervention in the environmental movement. Because yeah. if we do not address militarism, we what are we talking about here? This is all right. farce. And um, so I went to COP26 and um, it was a very enlightening experience of just where where global <laughs> leaders' heads are at on this issue. <laughs> and how, how far from reality they are. They're definitely not looking with eyes wide open at the future. Let's just say that. Yeah, I was just going to say, but there's just COP28 and it just it seems like it slides further and further into it's i want to say absurdity but it's it's insulting right um is that monarch who is the president of the whole thing and he's just like is it really fossil fuels that are the problem like i'm like okay like you head up an oil company but whatever like yeah sure like let's just take you seriously for a minute like it's just it's it's laughable but it's like no this is um obviously consequential and it's amazing that we are at this late stage and this is still being kind of these are still the talking points, more or less. I mean, it's shifted a little bit, but, you know, and the fact that we aren't even really, again, these these leaders, these people aren't even talking about, again, the elephant in the room, the Earth's greatest enemy, the U.S. military industrial complex. It's not even being, like, raised. And it's actually, that was interesting because I've seen a couple videos of you, I think when you were at COP, was it COP26? Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, You, I was it? Who did you ask the question to? Nancy was it Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi? Yes, I was like someone. I was like I, I remember. <laughs> okay, um, and you, yeah, you raised the. I mean, you ask a very direct question. It's respectful. It's a good question, but they're like cannot answer the question. They cannot in any meaningful way answer. The, it's not even just like those political responses that you get from politicians. It's even worse than that. It was something on another level. And it was, it was, I was like, God, like they can't, they cannot even talk about it. And then of course there's the obligatory, well, we support our troops uncritically. And I'm like, okay, like it's not even being raised. It's, it's like, that was kind of the next question I really had was like, you know, when you were going around asking people, I wanted to get kind of a, a contrast here. The people mm -hmm. who were like looking at this thing head on and f could feel the consequences of what the military is, the U.S. military is in their lives. And then the people that are like championing it and speaking on behalf of it and defending it. Um, yeah, I wanted to get a sense of like what your experiences was, uh, experiences were in doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really great point, Patrick, because I think that we both know that if you want to be a career politician in this country, the military is sacrosanct. You can't question the nature of what the United States is as an empire, as an imperialist project, you have to serve the system and you have to actually believe in American exceptionalism. And so you look at like just the function of corporate media and the function of Hollywood and all of these things that are embedded into the American psyche and our culture to just worship the military and not question 
it as a force for good in the world. And it's cartoonish and absurd and, mm-hmm. you know, it's deranged. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a great point because it's like, it, it is like a religion, especially when you're asking pointed questions to politicians, because it's like so jarring for them. They're just like, you're questioning <laughs> the entire reality as we know it. Like, what do you mm-hmm. mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I, you know, we went, especially as we're heading toward war with China, which is scary to think of because we have two other potential regional wars that could escalate into World War III ongoing right now in Ukraine and Gaza. But of course, Mm -hmm. the U.S. empire's project, um, instead of working with countries like Russia and China to solve the greatest existential threat that we face, which is climate change, they're actually just trying to build up um, operations to encroach Russia and China and to crush them. Mm-hmm. Um, and dominate them. So it's very disturbing. And because of this buildup with China, um, we decided to go to Hawaii, Guam, and Okinawa, which are three sites that the U.S. military is paying special attention to right now with the buildup um, to exercise and practice those, you know, what the potential is for for the future. Um, and speaking to the people that are being subjugated on those islands and their experience just being poisoned and um, just callously disregarded, mm-hmm. um, chewed up and, and thrown away by the military. And those experiences and the resistance movements on those islands versus the complete disassociation from politicians that just have no clue mm-hmm. um, that it's just shocking. I mean, you just, it's like a shock to their, their system processes, yeah. their, their, ro- their robots. Um, mm-hmm. So like at COP, for example, I mean, you know, there's so many fossil fuel lobbyists there. You're on the expo floor, expo floor, because it literally is like a convention hall with just oil companies <laughs> in like Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And uh, I mean, it's so comical. It's a fucking um, trip. And then, I'm sorry. <laughs> what was even crazier too is it's like, yes, yeah, what's crazier too is like they, you know, it's all, it's all like greenwashing. Mm-hmm. And so these oil companies and these politicians, they know, I, I think like, especially the, the companies because they're savvy enough to, to know PR and marketing and they know like inevitability, what they need to change into the, that greenwashing mode. And so they've all like invited in like these, these activists and like this neoliberal structure where it's mm. like corporations are going to save us from the problem that they created. And so that was the kind of like the theme of COP. Um, but I, I think mm. I was most shocked by Jay Inslee and some of these other like leading climate change pioneers. Um, Mm -hmm. Like he ran for president in 2016 on a climate change agenda, Jay Inslee. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like dumbfounded because he had the same answer as Nancy Pelosi. I mean, and for people who haven't watched the clip, watch it because it it, it really speaks to just the ridiculousness of where we are with the rhetoric and the solutions to to these problems, which is the military is the solution to the problems the military creates. And you just can't see the forest through the trees. It's like Nancy Pelosi is like bubble, like blabbing all over herself. She pivots over to this other guy, Frank Pallone, who's a New Jersey senator. And he starts talking about how we need a bigger Navy because the oceans are going to rise. And you're just like, what are you talking about, man? And then Nancy Pelosi is like, yeah, there's going to be all these security threats on the border and we need a military. Basically just being like migrants are going to come over as climate refugees and we need a military to like... <laughs> capture them or prevent them from coming in the right. country. It gets really dark really quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, like you guys are totally off the rails here. And this is a totally bipartisan, you know, as much as you want to pat yourselves on the back and talk about alternative energy, like 
the core of the system is never challenged. Yeah. No, there's just this like fantasy that's it's like it's like a weird spell that's being projected. It's this sort of very flimsy fantasy that's being projected. Like we have a solution or we have these solutions that are being discussed. Um, it's all kind of abstracted to such a great degree. Even they believe, I think, on some level that, that you know, they understand it's sort of an abstract idea because they don't really have details. It doesn't seem like they do anyway. Then as soon as someone asks them a pointed question about a very material reality, they struggle to, it's like they glitch out. They're like, um, <laughs> it's, we it's a weird thing to watch because it doesn't happen very often. It does occasionally now I see because the situation, like for, to bring it back to Gaza, the situation in Gaza is so obvious. It is so fucking obvious what is happening. And it has been happening for a long time. But it's like reached this like peak level of just genocide. I mean, it's just so obvious what we're witnessing. And so when, you know, a, a journalist who's just like a mainstream journalist asks, uh, what's his name, Kirby or whatever, mm -hmm. like a question in a press conference, he gets offended that it would even be discussed that this is what's happening, right? It's like they can't there's a wall there and you're never going to get past that wall. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure you came across that even discussing climate change, which is, I feel I mean, the violence of climate change is very real, but it's this sort of, it's a, it has a different quality in nature in the minds of people. So yeah, I'm sure I, I just wanted to comment on that. I'm sure that when you, when you do these questions, when you ask these questions and put them to these people, it's, I'm sure you come against some of that. Yeah, right. I just went to a defense contractor conference, which again had a big expo hall, all the leading defense contractors. There's I was like the only non-military, like uniformed personnel there. So I stuck <laughs> out like a sore thumb. Cool. But I mean, going up to like generals, I mean, ge these generals, these five-star generals, they they don't encounter like public officials or like journalists mm -hmm. asking hard questions. It's like they are just pampered. They just have yes men surrounding them. So like I you know, <laughs> go up to some of these generals after the panels and just be like, why does the U.S. have the right to dominate the Arctic? And they'd be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> be like, what kind of question? Who are you? <laughs> it's just like, what the hell is going on? I mean, it's just so. It's, it's <laughs> uh, so weird. It's weird that they live in that world and that reality where it's like the most obvious things that you and I would think about are like not even occurring to them. And they have the most power. That is what's fucking trippy about it to me is just the, because I mean, I don't do that work. I mean, I, that's why I admire your work because you're really putting yourself out there in that way. It's just like you are going to these places and these conferences where these people who do live in this kind of world kind of are. And you kind of poke a little little hole in their little reality bubble and they're like, oh God, like I'm sure that that causes a, a great amount of maybe emotional or psychological distress for like maybe a couple minutes and they're right, probably back right. to their lives. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. does not compute. Right, right. I just, I just wanted to address that. And so, I, I mean, I guess to just uh, in, in sort of this topic of Earth's um, Oh, wait, enemy. really quickly. Can I tell you another yeah. really funny yeah. story? So oh, I went yeah, to the, yeah, I went, uh, RIMPAC, um, the giant war games in the Pacific Ocean right off the mm. coast of Hawaii. And I somehow they approved me to go on board with like a small handful of defense reporters. It was very strange. Mm. And so I'm playing along and then we have this press conference. I'm in the middle, you know, I'm in an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean, so they can't really do anything except throw me off board. But um, 
I, I asked one of the generals who's like the, you know, leading the conference about why is it that we're doing these exercises that could kill, you know, hundreds of marine creatures and all the, this massive impact on the environment and the ocean. And is it worth it when we should be coalescing all these countries to fight the existential threat, which is climate change? And I was just like, is it worth the cost? And he was just like, I don't know if it is. It was mm. like a it was like a shocking moment of like realization from this guy where he's just like I actually don't know if right. it's worth it. And I was like, <laughs> so for like one moment, <laughs> yeah, I reached him on on a human level, and then it just kind of like went away. Right. Where the talking points came back, but I was just like, I I feel like at at a human level, we all know how insane this is, but there's no stopping it because it's just a machine that operates on its own. It's like if if you have a cog in the machine that wakes up and they want to change course, they'll just be thrown out and be replaced, just like you know, just like corporate yeah. boards. Yeah, I guess there, there's a feeling that I'm sure you come up against and feel, which is that it is. Yeah, it's it's not really. This is not. These aren't democratic institutions. Right. There's there's not representatives we vote for. Like this isn't, and even that, of course, is fraught with all kinds of issues, right? But like, um, it doesn't matter who we vote for. If we voted for Biden or Trump in this this coming election, like, does it matter? Like, I think that's the maybe the feeling that's coming across now. Again, the Gaza situation comes up again. Is just like, is Biden actually better than Trump in this regard? Like, would is this really a choice that we actually have? And that is in like an executive branch. And we're not even talking about like the State Department or the Defe Department of Defense. You know, we're not talking about institutions that are um, operating really regardless of who's in power, uh, who's elected into positions of power anyway. So, you know, that I, I there isn't a lot of um, in the traditional sense of how we understand political power to work and how we as 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 members of the society participate in that. You know, there really isn't like a path to changing that. I think it's no, it's um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Sorry, that's a rather hopeless statement. But, but I mean, it's true. It's yeah. true. I mean, especially yeah. with the Gaza stuff, you look at Biden and you just think, look, as much as you're going to browbeat me about Trump being worse, there's no crime worse than genocide. So it actually yeah. doesn't matter if Trump talks about the Muslim ban or any of these things because genocide is the ultimate crime and Biden yeah. is facilitating genocide. And so I I, I think that this is going to seal his fate. Yeah. Well, this is actually this is a question that just came up in my mind is just like in, in one extraordinary aspect of what we're seeing with the U.S. Uh, participation in this genocide is this has been described over and over again this way is that not only is the u.s isolated in the world like pretty much every country in the world is like we need to stop this the u.s is isolated in that sense but the biden administration is isolated not only within just the united states but within it's like biden is isolated mm -hmm. within his own administration and his own uh, mm -hmm. like campaign and that to me is the the I, I wanted to get your sense of that part of it because i feel like we have this sense like okay if an election is on the line, if Biden's not going to, you know, potentially lose an election this year, then he will change his course, even if it's in um, incremental ways. Um, we're not seeing that, as far as no. I can tell, in this situation. What is your sense of that and why that's the case? 
It's the old guard. I mean, Biden, out of everyone in the government, he is one of the most unabashed, heartless Zionists that there is. I mean, I that that was what was so messed up about the quote unquote choice that we had in mm. 2020, which mm. was Biden is is right wing. He was anti-abortion. He, I mean, it was just like you go down every single the, a litany of his policies, and they're all horrific right wing policies. And so, I mean, he, you know, he's on camera decades ago saying, if if Israel didn't exist, we would need to create her to serve our interests. I mean, you even had Menachem um, Begin, like I think, coming to back during the Lebanon invasion. I think it was the nineties. He actually talked about how there was a, a rogue senator who stood up and said Israel should go further, mm-hmm. and that it necessitated killing women and children to protect Israel Israel's borders. And Begin was just like, "Well, I wouldn't go that far." I mean, and he was talking <laughs> about Biden. He did, mm. this is in the Times of Israel. I mean, it is so crazy how. I mean, first of all, I don't think Biden is really acting on his own accord at this point. I think that when you look at him, it's like Weekend at Bernie's. Someone is like puppeting <laughs> a corpse. Yeah. Um, I don't know where the hell Kamala Harris is. But I, yeah, yeah, I mean, Blinken, all the people who are surrounding Biden are so detached from reality. And they've invested so much in the Israeli colonial project that it, it it's like it's a rogue state. It's a runaway train at this point. But they they can't turn back now because they need Israel so much um, as their colonial outpost in the Middle East that they're willing to do whatever, um, which is crazy because Israel's doing so much more than the U.S. could even get away with because the U.S. cares much more about optics. Um, yeah. The U.S. would never go and just assassinate 100 journalists and like, yeah. you know, I mean, it, so it's so crazy. But I think that um, the more that you're seeing staffers quit in droves and all of these, you know, congressional um, workers and stuff like calling for a ceasefire and all these people being like, why is Biden sabotaging his own campaign? I think mm-hmm. a, he's not even an operation of his own mm-hmm. mind and, and policies. So I think that he's just surrounded also by just rabid Likudnik Zionists who want, you know, Likudnik affiliated Zionists who just want to give Israel a green light for whatever it, it's doing. They can't turn back now. And especially because they're now they're co-conspirators. I mean, they yeah. now that Israel's being charged officially with genocide by South Africa in this world court, I mean, the U.S. has to go balls to the wall now. There's no turning back because now they're complicit and they're conspirators of genocide. I ask myself every day, why is Biden sabotaging himself like this? I You could have asked that about anything he's done since he got elected. He has done nothing but sabotage his own re-election chances since the day he got elected. He's reneged yeah. on every single promise, mm-hmm. even on the foreign policy front. I I had hopes of Cuba normalization and the Iran deal because of Blinken, um, some of these other people who were in Obama's cabinet. And I've just been appalled yeah. at how much he just does not give a shit about anything. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's a great question, Patrick. I wish that staffers could turn to him and ask why the fuck are you doing this yeah yeah i mean i guess it just again i just i mean even i'm a little surprised that a democrat (laughs) um (laughs) is a little bit less concerned about optics than than i would expect is all that that's all i mean i know democrats for what they are i just i just wanted to kind of address that just it's it's a little odd is all Um, sick yeah it is and yeah and i wanted to speak to the reality of, I mean, 
mentioned the assassination of journalists. And so I just wanted to kind of get at this because I was I, I watched a speech that you gave. Uh, it's called the Belmarsh Tribunal, mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, addressing the, uh, I guess, the situation that Julian Assange is, is, is in, the persecution by the United States and his collaborator, the United Kingdom, um, and trying to extradite him to the U.S. Um, I mean, I really liked your speech. I, I thought it was, it got to the point, and I, and I, and I really liked this point you made. It was like, remember when WikiLeaks came out with these leaks, this information? Remember how, like, that felt like all of a sudden, like the the dynamic changed. Isn't that great, right? And we've seen the consequences over the long term, per, the the personal costs of that on Assange and and um, you know Chelsea Manning and others um, has been huge. And so, you know, the U.S. of course has, when it comes to actual journalism and really exposing crimes, you know, nakedly, um, yeah, they go after you. And there's all kinds of ways that people get assassinated. And I think there's like the direct assassinations like we're seeing in Gaza, right? Where over, I think a last statistic I saw was like 105 journalists have died since October 7th in Gaza. Um, and that's compared to, I think there was a number there. It was like the amount of journalists that died in like World War II was like less than half of that. So like just to give it a scale, like that is not, a, this is pretty outside the range of what's considered pretty common in wartime, Right. And yeah, so I just wanted to speak to that reality of like how, you know, in this sense, the these, you know, the US empire, as well as its collaborator Israel engages in various forms of assassination, basically, or ways to suppress the truth, how they go after journalists and so on. Um, yeah, just kind of open that up. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, it, it is, it's crazy what happened to Assange and it's mm. devastating you know, to see that this man who has done nothing but publish leaks, which is what every news organization should be doing, right? I mean, holding power to account and exposing crimes. That's like the fundamental <laughs> thing that, mm-hmm. that journalism should be based yeah. upon. But I think mm-hmm. that we live in a country, like I said, where it's not just politicians and queer politicians who have to believe in the system and be empire babies. It's also journalists working in corporate media. I mean, I think that was my biggest like shocking realization of how just the system integrates itself and props up something like US empire and why the media fundamentally fails as an institution and under capitalism. And it's the way that corporate media survives and thrives and how it's, um, you know, how it it basically is generated to sustain these myths. Yeah. And it is funded and subsidized by the very system that it should be exposing. You know, I mean, when you look at corporate media and you see that it's sponsored by Lockheed Martin or Boeing or, mm-hmm. you know, and this is this this goes to some an institution like NPR, which I thought was like publicly funded for the longest time. And then I realized that it gets big grants from BP. And so how could you report honestly on the, the BP oil spill if you're getting... Right. Funded by BP. Um, and so, like, because I've worked for Russia Today and Telesor and other state-funded media entities, I, I'm i quite clear about the bias that I'm entering into. And I yeah. make a point to circumvent that and be very honest about the funding structure and things like that. And I think a lot of corporate media journalists are, are not honest about self-censorship and about biases mm-hmm. and how these institutions really work to, to 
filter stories and and suppress the truth and and they're willing agents i mean let's be clear like the, these people are willing agents to this and so when you have someone like julian assange putting the entire journalist industry to shame by exposing so many crimes um people want it people are very campused and they you know they loved julian when it was the right time yeah. when the iraq war was <laughs> You know, it, these leaks came out and we saw the collateral murder video and we saw things like the Haditha massacre and all of the all of these horrific atrocities and, and it started to shift public opinion. And so all of that was kind of it all galvanized and coalesced at a, at a certain time where Julian Assange was very favored. And then as he started to go, you know, with with the Podesta leaks and the DNC and um, then, you know, liberals turned on him. And so yeah. they they started to see him as a political enemy instead of doing his job as a journalist. And I, I right. do think that if Julian Assange got a ton of a, a trove of documents on Trump, he would have released those too. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't given that. He was, you know, he had the Podesta files, which were crazy. And I think I would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is insane, the character assassinations, to your point. Like, Israel is very brazen. They go farther than any country in the world. I mean, they are targeting mm-hmm. and assassinating political opponents, dissidents, and journalists. This is a protected category under the Geneva Conventions. Even in, in a standing army in an actual war, these are protected civilian categories. You cannot kill journalists marked press. And they are doing that maliciously, intentionally over and over again. But the U.S. tends to do something differently, even though they did try to, you know, they did want to kill Julian Assange. We saw Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration actually did put out ideas. How can we fucking kill this guy yeah. um, but I think that they even realized that was too far and hey why kill someone when you can just character assassinate him and throw him in prison in a dungeon and throw away the key but before they even tried to um, put that out there that the media had completely character assassinated Assange he was a rapist he was a Russian agent he was this mm-hmm. and that he wasn't a journalist And and so, you know, and so we had just think piece after think piece. Oh, he's not a journalist. Oh, he's just hiding out from these sex crimes and he's a pest and this and that. And it just Mm -hmm. takes away from the brutality of reality, which is a man who published leaks exposing war crimes is persecuted in an unprecedented way that actually criminalizes not only all journalism, but all dissent in this country. And it's going to be a landmark ruling that is going to change fundamentally our constitutional principles that we allege to like revere and protect. And it's the foundation of this fucking great democracy that we all love. So Mm -hmm. it's totally insane. Um, And it's disgusting what's going on. And the character assassinations, I mean, it's really anyone. I mean, look at Wikipedia, the way that I, I'm i portrayed on Wikipedia. I have this huge extensive body of work. I've been all around the world. I've documented so many things. And, and when you look at Wikipedia, it's just I'm a truther and I'm I'm a you know an anti-Semite essentially. And I'm a Russian uh, agent. It's like, wow, what mm. really truncated my life work into <laughs> three insults. Um, but it's just because they uh, source from corporate media and corporate media mm-hmm. has a very – you know, clear agenda. (laughs) And they want to discredit and character assassinate journalists who challenge or undermine that in any way possible. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so that's the way the U.S. likes to do it. It's either ignore or or assassinate your character in, in corporate media. And then it just kind of uses the references of corporate media to legitimize these attacks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like you there's many ways that a person can be killed in the public eye. Right. And like with, you know, with Assange, I thought it was interesting because, yeah, the, the 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 assassination of his character it's like we can have like he's a kind of an odd dude and idiosyncratic and i'm sure he's got all these like whatever like that's fine like who cares because it's like that's not the point totally. you know and and of course that was always kind of put forward as like that is the point actually it's because he's like this bad guy or whatever and anyway i i just i wanted to kind of make those connections because you know I, I guess there was there was a, another thing which has to do with the situation in gaza which is that you know, regarding your speech that you gave, which was that um, back in 2010 ish, those period that period when WikiLeaks was starting to really release all these documents up to about 2016, I guess. Um, the, I mean, it's amazing how quickly things have changed. So, like now, much of the information that we're getting from Gaza are people that are there, and they're uploading to social media largely, right? Right. Um, so many people are. You know, this is actually something you talked about in your interview with um, Saul Williams. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the way that technology is sort of allowing us to see things that we otherwise wouldn't. So there was just this interesting change that's occurred over time where how, you know, the rawness of the reality of, of what's happening in Gaza is now you don't necessarily need an organization like WikiLeaks to pull that off. Um, And that what was happening in Iraq uh, with the U.S. invasion, it did take time for certain types of information to get out, but people weren't able to upload to TikTok or to Instagram at that time, right? So there is this fundamental shift, I think, in how we're um, receiving information at this time, for good or for ill. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a, it, right, exactly. I mean, during the Iraq war, we we only found out about the massacres of civilians and, and how many civilians were dying and the war crimes um through WikiLeaks, because at the time, the advent of social media hadn't gotten to the point where Iraqis could be just dictating their reality and undermining what we were being fed by our military and our government. And so that's why WikiLeaks was so essential to facilitate the end of the Iraq war, because once the Iraqi government and you know the, the resistance there understood the, the breadth and scope of war crimes that were you know happening on the mm-hmm. ground, I think that's what really helped bring that to an end and push U.S. forces out. Um, fast forward mm-hmm. to Gaza today. I mean, there's a Haditha massacre happening every single day. There's Milai massacres and Abu Ghraib's happening real time daily. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is. It, it does feel like very dystopian on a completely other level where it's like hyper-normalization like very quickly of, of like another level of brutality. And then not only are Palestinians able to show us this, live streaming their genocide but it's also like like i was saying with saul williams it's like this overlap of like medieval barbaric brutality overlapped with this high technology being able to like Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. like you know when we study ethnic cleansings and genocides and the holocaust and we're just like it it's like you have like mental exercises and thought exercises about like how could someone be this evil how how does evil like this like what do these acts look like? Like, how did this actually happen? And and we're seeing it now. Like, you just yeah. turn on the computer and you can look yeah. at your 
at it. And it's yeah. not just Palestinians like showing us, it's Israelis showing us their unending depravity as they loot and pillage and, and kill. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's super disturbing and it's just getting worse, Patrick. And I, and I fear mm. where it's going to go because like I said, I mean, we're on, we're on the precipice of several regional wars that could erupt over this. And it's just, it's just crazy that here we are three months into this genocide and it, it, it seems like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, several weeks, a few weeks ago, I had an interview with a historian, um, Rashid Khalidi, who wrote hundred years war on Palestine. And, um, it was something like, it just shows you how kind of flu or fast the situation is, to, or how quickly this is developing. But like, I asked him like, well, what's like kind of the end game here? Like, I mean, like, are they just going to kill everybody in Gaza? Like that doesn't seem, well, I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, people have thrown around ideas, well, we just nuke it or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just like really genocidal, but you know, discussions of moving them to the Sinai Peninsula, or mm -hmm. now I'm seeing headlines of Israeli diplomats or Israeli officials speaking with people from Congo or other like nations in Africa, like, can we just offload some refugees to you guys? You know, it's like, um, the plan is to just vacate that region, right? And I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's interesting how media plays a role in that for good. Again, like I think sometimes the media is just trying to say, Hey, this is what they're planning. And then there's other types of media, which is more like trying to put the seed in the minds of people so that you start to accept it as part of the discourse. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a difference there and how it's framed and contextualized a difference between someone reporting it from like, a, like Al, uh, Al Jazeera or something versus like the New York Times, right? Like the way they're going to frame some of these subjects is very, very different. Um, it's so yeah. crazy. It's so crazy that this is just being like tacitly like, like understood like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, where it's like even my friends there, I'm like hitting them up. I'm like, what are you, what do you, can you go anywhere? And they're just like, no, like, what do yeah. you, like, I don't, it's like, for me, I'm just yeah. like, let's fundraise to get you out of Gaza now. And they're just like, great. I have nowhere to fucking go. Right. It's like mind blowing that this is the world is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Egypt can take him. Everyone just takes a couple thousand refugees. It's like, why, why are we yeah. accepting ethnic cleansing? Like that is the definition of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. We're all just accepting that this is an inevitability that like, oh, well, like, yeah, we're just going to sit back. Let Israel do this. Yeah. And then deal with the consequences. Like, yeah, it's our responsibility. We just take a couple thousand each country. It's like, what the hell is going well, on, man? We're just like, watching them flatten yeah. this whole area. Yeah. Well, there's a whole like casual racism of like, well, they're just Arab. So they'll just go hang out with right. other yeah, Arab people. Yeah, go to Arab countries. It's like, <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, you have to have like, there's certain levels of it that are like, the more you get down, you're like, man, this is fucking depraved. And this is like, well, this is even more depraved. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. Um, and then the Israeli media too, like I forgot to even say this. I mean, when I was in Israel and I tried to get press yeah. credentials, went through all the proper protocols and tried to mm -hmm. get press credentials to get into Gaza. And I was denied um, for the rest of my life. I was like banned from Gaza forever by the Israeli government because I, I was told that I was an Iranian agent and a propagandist. And I think that that is just... It speaks to the censorship model of if you are a journalist trying to do critical journalism within the occupied territories, you will not be able to do your job. 
And we just saw a report coming out, I think it was on The Intercept, about the extensive censorship that Israel forces CNN to go through. I mean, everything is filtered mm. through the Israeli military and um, you you can't get a story out until it's approved. Right. Um, this is this is how this country works too. In Hollywood, I mean, at the defense contractor conference, I remember speaking to a guy off the record. He didn't realize I was secretly recording him, um, but he was just he basically <laughs> was just like, yeah, I used to work for the Hollywood Entertainment Bureau, like as a military liaison. He was like, he was like, when I started working there, man, we had like three movies that we were working on, working on meaning like changing the scripts, making mm-hmm. sure that. The military was being depicted favorably and he's like when i left that bureau he's like we we had like 50 movies mm-hmm. and i was just like this is it, it's insidious in yeah. this country but in israel it's so blatant i mean they're just straight up it's so fascist that they're just you know they banned al jazeera they're banning any critical journalism or critical journalists and they just don't allow you to get into these territories and then they'll turn around and be like why are there no oh you want to be jewish and get into gaza good luck it's like well you won't let us in (laughs) yeah Um, so but it's like it's too late i mean they they try to lock down the narrative but they can't stop palestinians from filming what's happening to them right yeah and and i guess there's there's just one other thing which i just wanted to reference because i just remember this this is lived in my head ever since i saw it which is this set of interviews you did with israeli citizens and he was like i mean (laughs) i can't remember where it was city this was in that you did this jerusalem jerusalem okay so yeah you're just speaking to people on the street doing street interviews and you're just trying to get a sense of like what do israelis think about palestinians and the situation there um yeah it was you know it's alarming i think people and this was a few years ago right so mm-hmm. this isn't even now since october 7th where i've talked to people or I've, I've like you know i've had interviews and i've looked at other people's work where they're talking about like what is the left in israel and a lot of people are like well even supposed leftists in israel have gone full tilt right wing in response to october 7th right so I don't know. I think there's this pervasive kind of cultural attitude in Israel that seems to be pretty genocidal. Um, I hear some conflicting things, which I think is that people just generally want to have peace and they feel like the government of Israel is, you know, engaging in this long war and they just want to get the hostages back kind of thing. And they feel, you know, like Netanyahu is pretty unpopular and stuff like that. But I do think there's a pretty general cultural attitude that Palestinian lives do not matter and that you know, you just hear kind of flippant genocidal remarks pretty frequently. And so I'm curious, like, in your experience in doing those interviews, I have to admire your sort of straight-faced approach. <laughs> like nodding along, like, like, oh, you want to carpet bomb them? Oh, yeah, so I know. It was like you're trying to give them, like, a sense, like, it's okay to keep on talking, Continue. you know? Go yeah. on. <laughs> yes. Carpet bomb Gaza or the Middle East or... <laughs> Yeah, because I'm like, how would I respond in that situation? Be like, oh, Jesus Christ, like, I'm going to get away from you. But um, no, you 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 let them speak. And, and it was interesting, the diversity of people. I'm sorry I'm talking so much. I just want to hear no, your response to this. But I feel like I drone on. And I like. No, no, you're good. I just I just wanted to say that, like, it was interesting because some of the people are, like, were raised and born there. They're like, I was in the IDF. You know, I did my time. Da, da, da. And there's people that are like, I'm from New York, and I'm just yeah. kind of visiting, and I think I'm going to get citizenship. And they're just kind of speaking casually about it. Like, it's just like, I'm Jewish, so I can. Like, no big deal, you know? And I'm just like, this is weird. Like, this weird, like, college student from Brooklyn is like, just like, I'm gonna, I might just move to Tel Aviv, whatever, you know? And it's, 
It's an interesting diversity, uh, diversity, but an interesting kind of collection of people that you interviewed in that. And um, my, my point, rambling on, my point is like, how does, I mean, what is sort of the cultural social mechanisms that sort of generate that attitude? Like, I know there's like a lack of information and all this, but I don't know. There's 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 something else going on there that even in the U.S., when some war effort is being generated, like we remember the Iraq War, there was certainly a fervor that emerged after 9-11, but that subsides after some time. People start to see it as like, oh, is this really worth it? What is actually going on here? Some information breaks through. It doesn't seem like that's as much of the case in Israel. I could be wrong. I've never been there. I don't know. But I'm curious. Like, no, what are sort wrong. of the, Yeah. I'm curious what's going on there in your view. You're not wrong. I mean, let me let me pose a question to you. If okay. we know that a horrific genocide took place here centuries ago, hmm. would you be able to be an American citizen if 40 miles away, um, you know, ethnic cleansing was active. I mean, you knew that natives were being massacred and I mean, just mm -hmm. daily subjugation, humiliation and occupation of like indigenous people that were being actively cleansed real time. Would you be able to function in a society like that? I mean, I guess I would be. Yeah. It's fucked up, I mean, but it's true. It's that's the thing. It's like you have to be okay with these foundational policies that define what Israel is. It's a settler colony that's based on the continuous ethnic cleansing and expulsion of the indigenous people. And this yeah. isn't just something that happened with the Nakba. This is an ongoing settler colonial project that is it it it's continued with the ideal um, goal of the greater Israel project. This is why none mm -hmm. of the sovereignty in the, the borders of Lebanon and Syria matter to Israel because for them, all of the land is theirs. Um, right. And you cannot be, you cannot live there. Even if, even as a so-called leftist, if you are not okay with ethnic cleansing, if you're not okay with military occupation, if you're not okay with, that subjugation and humiliation that goes along with that policy. Right. Um, I met leftists, so-called leftists, and they said not only is being a leftist a slur and an insult, mm -hmm. and it's kind of scary to declare yourself as a leftist, but they were like, for me, a leftist means that we should have a more humane occupation <laughs> in the mm -hmm. West Bank. Mm. So it was never about mm -hmm. anti-Zionism. I think anti-Zionist Jews... Israelis certainly exist. I think a lot of them have dual citizenship and they have, they can easily leave. And I know several Jewish Israelis who have fled because it's such a fascist society. It's actually dangerous to live there. And now, especially now after October 7th, it's, you can be like, it's very dangerous to be a leftist, to be protesting, yeah. to be, even be posting mm -hmm. on social media. You can get arrested, you can get beat up. But I'm talking about five years ago when you know, this is just the day-to-day -day stuff going on in Israel. I mean, my friends, uh, my friend David Sheen, who lives there, he's in Tel Aviv, and he would he would kind of embed himself into these fascist strongholds of you know ten thousand people in Tel Aviv chanting "death to leftists," mm. not just death to Arabs, death to mm. the leftists, because they hate organizations like Bet Salem, who you know record 
and document these human rights violations and executions of Palestinians and stuff like that and make Israel look bad. And so there's a saying within Israeli society that Arabs are the common cold and leftists are AIDS. And you have to get rid of the leftists if you want to get rid of Arabs and do the final solution because the leftists are kind of that last line of defense preventing you from committing genocide. And I even remember interviewing, I mean, this is all random people. Like Mm -hmm. I've had so many people be like, you wanted to make Israelis look bad. You just cherry picked. I was like, no, (laughs) I wish I did. It's literally just the most random sampling. I mean, I was Mm. in the West Bank for a month. I talked to hundreds of Palestinians. Not one person said anything remotely genocidal. Even a Mm. guy who was getting... rocks and firebombed his there was a settlement right on top of his home and he was just like he was like there's so much land why can't they just live there he's like why do they have to live right on top of my home mm-hmm. and he was just like i don't i just want to live in peace i just want to live in peace and you go over for 20 minutes in jerusalem and it's just the most racist genocidal incitement you've ever heard in your life i remember interviewing one woman who's just american as apple pie straight up mm-hmm. i was like where are you mm-hmm. from brooklyn mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. are you here? I was like, I mean, when did you come here? And so I like slipped up. I was like, why yeah, are yeah. you here? I mean, when did you come? And, right. and so really quickly, she's just like, yeah. I was just like, so what do you think about the situation? She's like, well, I think we know who the enemy is. And I was like, so the enemy meaning Palestinian? She's like, no, the enemy meaning those who are too politically correct to point out the enemy. I was like, oh, so basically the leftists. Like yeah. it's just so pervasive mm. and so crazy. And what's crazy to me, Patrick, is this is what people say on camera. They knew that they were speaking to right. a camera and they were saying, kill them all, expel them all. Leftists are the enemy, nuke them, carpet bomb them. And it's just like, what are you guys saying off camera? This is, and, and, you know, we see this reflected in polling too, especially in the wake of October 7th, it was already really bad. You look at 2014 yeah. polling, 2021 polling, almost, you know, it was a unanimous support for what was going on in Gaza and the military occupation. But you look now not even 2% of, of Israelis believe that there's too much firepower being used in Oof. the war. And that, I think, is a statistic that really says it all. Yeah. I was just thinking that that there's a psychological component, too, of, of like, if you participate, you mentioned this with Biden, like, once you kind of get so far along in something, it's hard to step back from the thing you're doing, Um feel like yeah you know being just part of that society is one step and then the fact that isn't military service compulsory like isn't that just 100%. like part of like regardless if you're male or female whatever yep. you just have to join so there's like everyone's sort of kind of in a very direct way participated in this mm-hmm. occupation right and so yeah when you play that out on a society-wide scale this is the result and, th- and this is i think the most jarring thing this is maybe one of the more final points of this discussion with you. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, the jarring thing is that many of us feel like the rhetoric that we hear from Israeli politicians and military officials is something that somehow existed in some past century or past decade, right? Like we think of Jim Crow, United States, Mm -hmm. we think of, you know, the uh, slavery in the United States or just the sort of explicit overt white supremacist language being pretty normalized and now it's just like we don't say those words anymore we don't talk in that way it still exists but it's just in a different form and now we're seeing something playing out where we're like wait wasn't that like this is sort of a liberal sensibility but like it's pervasive which is like didn't that happen like a long time ago like Mm -hmm. we're seeing it happening right now and i think that's part of what's so isolated 
makes Israel Israel so isolated in the world is that many people feel like, do you guys even realize what you guys are saying? You're talking about these people speaking on camera and they have no shame no speaking shame. in genocidal language. Um, and that is a bit unusual, I think. I, I think that yeah. that is what's so alarming and shocking and revolting for so many people to see it happen in real time is like not only watching gaza being obliterated but people are cheerleading it that's the other component you know people don't even pretend like it's a tragedy it's like keep it going it's it's really shocking and and i don't know it's the cradle to grave indoctrination and it's uh, the genocidal intent is actually one of the hardest things to prove with genocide Mm -hmm. not in this case I mean, mm-hmm. in the South Africa ruling, they have five pages of just genocidal, just intent laid bare and explicit and no qualms at all. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that when it's so normalized in a society that's so fascist and isolated, it it's not an aberration. And, and as much as U.S. politicians and media officials want to placate to Americans and try to Oh no, that's not what Israel's is doing. Oh no, they're not mm-hmm. targeting civilians. It's like, why are you lying to us when we can just look at what they're saying? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like Yeah. Yeah, there's not even really a fog of war as much as it's just really pretty right. pretty like out there. Everybody knows what's going on. Right. Oh. It's just so shrouded with impunity. It's like these people, yeah, I mean, usually like war criminals would want to hide their behavior, but like not in this case. And so you have, yeah. you know, US lapdogs like trying to like cover their tracks and they're just like what are you talking about (laughs) like right right well i I think just to conclude here is just that i think that if there's a again i wanted to bridge some subjects together and the subjects being the kind of the reality of the u.s empire in the world and it's you know it's kind of again i use this term over and over again elephant in the room which is this sort of thing we don't talk about when we talk about climate change and to discuss what's happening in gaza as well which is like the violence that is enacted against people and the dehumanization of Palestinians is a global issue in the same way that climate change is. These are they're they're connected in really profound ways, and I think that the violence that climate change is, which is entirely human caused, is the same violence that's being enacted on Palestinian people. It's the same root, and I've tried to communicate that in various ways over the years of doing my work, and I think you do as well. I think there's a reason why you're focusing so intensely on the situation in Gaza as much as you're focusing on putting out a full-length documentary about the impact that the U.S. military-industrial complex is having on the global environment, on the biosphere, and on the climate system. I think that for us, it's pretty obvious, those connections. And I think we have to continually, not remind people, but to kind of continually point to that because I think it's convenient to separate these things as like different activist actions you're either like pro-Palestine, liberate Palestine, decolonize Palestine, and like, you know, let's adapt to climate change or stop climate change or whatever. It's like, these are the same, they're under the same thing. It's part of the same structure of violence. Um, I just really, I think we got at that in this discussion, I think. So yeah, I just really wanted to, to thank you for your work and your words. Thank you, Patrick. I mean, I think you just hit it on the head. I mean, it is the same structure of imperialism, the same reason that Israel exists and it's a linchpin for the empire and a battering ram in the Middle East is the same reason why we are dealing with the cataclysmic changes of climate change. It's the, Mm -hmm. 
it's the runaway train of a global capitalism and empire. And it's, it's, it's two prongs of the same beast. Um, it's absolutely the same system. And I think that people are making these connections. They're linking these things together where, whether you were looking at police brutality in the U S um, you know, police are trained by Israeli forces and, and all of this is propped up by the same institution. Mm-hmm. It's the same institution that, that we're battling. Um, and that's why we talk about global liberation, global solidarity, internationalism, because you can't look at any issue in isolation anymore, you know, as globalization has now penetrated the world. I mean, that, that activism needs to be globalized as well, because we are all brothers and sisters in this struggle and no one is free until all of us are free. And that's not just a catch all phrase. That is quite literally what we're dealing with because we are Mm -hmm. in a global empire and we are all subjugated in one way or another and denied, um, our own sovereignty to, to Mm -hmm. really live as free people and to pursue our potential, um, and the potential to have beautiful things in this world. And I, I do believe in a utopian vision. I want to bring us back to that sci-fi in the seventies where we, we thought in more utopian, Mm-hmm. You know, a more utopian vision instead of just dystopianism, which I think yeah, is kind of, right. it's hard to break out. Yeah, of it's, what a, it's about having that radical imagination. A hundred percent. We have to go back to that. We have to keep striving for that, Patrick. And conversations like this hopefully will spark passion or interest or intrigue in other people to to pursue that truth and look at reality with eyes wide open as well. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to conclude this discussion. And, and finally, I just want to ask about the progress of this documentary, Earth's Greatest Enemy. It has yet to be released. And I saw that it pretty much reached its fundraising goal. So I just wanted to ask what to expect as far as that, you know, being released and, and like, if there's anything that we need to do, people need to do to kind of help complete this. I mean, of this. course, we would love all the support we could get because now, even though we fundraised to film everything, now we, we're in the post-production phase, which could be even mm. costlier. But, um, mm. you know, it has mm. been two and a half years and I know people are like, what the hell is going on? Look, documentaries <laughs> take time. And mm. this is a big one. This is a big one. Um, but we have <laughs> 60 minutes of the film done. Mm. absolutely incredible stuff. The problem is we have like three more things that we haven't even started <laughs> to edit. And I'm like, Oh my God. So we might have to just yeah. leave a lot on the cutting room floor. We're really seeing all of the inter- extended interviews on our Patreon. Um, so we're probably going to release a huge archive of all the interviews, yeah. everything that we couldn't fit into the film. Like for example, um, like we did a lot of just climate change interviews and, Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I was just like, you know what? I Unfortunately, we have to leave all this on the cutting room floor because I don't want to convince people about what whether or not climate change is real in this documentary. It's like, yeah. if you are not entering into watching this, it's like, I, that's not my job. I feel like we all kind of need to be, you know, to yeah. like the skeptics. It's like, I, can't, I don't have fucking time for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, like, but it's the so, sun, it's the cycles of the solar energy. Yeah, yeah, it's like, just like up. solar flares, <laughs> like, ah, um, the ice yeah. age, you said it was going to be an ice age, and now it's this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, exhausting. I mean, at this point, it's like, look, like, we, we kind of need everyone on board who is already concerned and, or at least mm-hmm. open to the idea. Um, but yeah, the documentary should be out this year, my friend. Hopefully Good. in the earlier half of the year, I'm yeah. I'm betting on it. So Good. we're excited. We're plugging along. We have our editor working full time, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a doozy. The question is, how are we gonna get it distributed? And we know 
in a country that worships the military, it might be hard to do on these main networks. So keep an yeah. eye out, sign up for Earth's Greatest Enemy mailing list so we can definitely keep you notified when we finally do put it out there and how you can watch it. Yeah. Well, great. Well, that just the final note was just like, you know, as far as independent journalists go, you've been really successful, I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't see you on any major networks yet. I think a lot of people know who the hell you are. And that's a really impressive feat in the United States. So congratulations on Thanks, that. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just say thank you so much again for the time. Really appreciate it, Abby. It was really fun. Thank you so much, Patrick, for what you do. It was great to talk to you. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at LastBornPodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, you will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page. That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.